0: Today is July 29th, 2013, and my guest is Jagdish Bhagwati, professor of economics at Columbia University. He is a prolific scholar and author in the area of international trade. His latest book is Why Growth Matters, co-authored with Arvind Panagaria, a study of the past and the potential future of the economy of India. Jagdish, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Welcome, indeed. Uh, I'm glad you asked me.
0: Now, your book starts out with an analysis of the past uh, and how the Indian economy has has fared over the last decades. I want to start with an overview of the path of the economy since independence a little over 60 years ago. And you point to some very distinctive policy regimes over that time period. What were the key policies over that time period that changed and uh, what have been the results?
1: I think we started out very well in the first five year plan, uh, with very few controls, uh, uh, fairly relaxed attitude towards foreign investment, towards industrial licensing, and so on. And that was 1951 to 56. The balance of payments was comfortable. Uh, and I think there was no, I mean, basically it was five to five and a half percent growth rate. Uh, the, in fact, India was the envy of the world at that time because it had an excellent uh, civil service, it had an independent judiciary, uh, and the politicians were, were just had just come out of the independence movement and were not, not corrupted in any way because there was no great big licensing system, et cetera, to work with. So, But then what happened was that we ran into uh, a, a balance of payments crisis, uh, which then led to essentially in possession of several controls, which then proliferated uh, enormously. And I think that, in a way, it was sort of accidental. It wasn't theoretically saying, oh, we ought to have protection. Uh, we ought to have regulation of economic activity. But we kind of slipped into it somewhat accidentally uh, as a result of the payments' difficulties, uh which we should have changed you know we should have used the exchange rate and there was a big debate around 1966 in which i participated i was a lead one uh, asking for uh, basically exchanges in the exchange rate dismantling of the of the control system on foreign trade etc uh but i think the it took quite a while before that could really get anywhere um so i think basically uh it wasn't a theoretical approach, which led to our import substitution policies, but simply a side effect of the fact that we weren't handling the balance of payments crisis effectively. But then Mrs. Indira Gandhi comes in, uh, in the late 60s, and she, because of political reasons, wanted to actually turn to to socialism. Uh, This is something we hadn't really had before, certainly not under her father, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru. And she... moved very rapidly into nationalizing things, uh like like the insurance policy uh, sector, uh which we are now trying to re you know, to denationalize. That was nationalized by her uh and it has left a legacy because it was done through the parliament. So the parliament has to uh reverse the whole thing, which takes longer as you know, compared to say executive action. Uh so but she basically undermined the system completely through a variety of policies which were extremely populist and socialist. And that those 10 years basically ruined the economy in a very big way. And then we come mainly to the reforms era where also a, a nice balance of payments crisis kicked us into action. But by that time, everybody was new, in fact, within the country – that the system could not go on the way Indira Gandhi had uh, decided it should be run. Uh, And I think there were three things which uh, people like me were focusing on, uh, which are three elements of of a completely counterproductive economic strategy or economic policy framework. I mean, one was uh, complete proliferation of um, restrictions, much like the uh, Republicans worry about here today, uh, but far worse. Uh, I, I used to say, uh, in my after dinner speeches, uh, that the trouble in India was uh, that Adam Smith's invisible hand was nowhere to be seen. I mean, literally, it was a kind of, uh, anti dash market fundamentalism everywhere. Uh, two, we were very mindful and worried about trade. Fuel. And so trade is a proportion of GNP. We were the only country that had over, over two decades reduced that share. And thirdly, on direct foreign investment also, we had actually completely eliminated it, inward flow of investment. Uh, when I started writing about the reforms in earnest again in 1960, in 1991, I looked at the amount of direct foreign investment we had, and it turned out, uh, it was, in fact, a hundred million dollars. That was the equity investment inflow. You just have to take a look at this, a, a map of India and you say, well, how ludicrous it is. I mean, even Stanford or Columbia University's budget is bigger than that. So I thought there must be a mistake. I must be missing a, a zero or at least, or maybe two zeros, but it wasn't. That was in fact what we brought it down to. Well, hundred so million. A hundred million, yeah. you can't believe it. So in fact, we were terribly inward looking. And we were autark- uh, autarkic, uh, and we were also uh, had senseless restrictions everywhere, which would have made even Kafka blush. So I think that is where I think we decided in the end <clears throat> that, and since some of us, like I, had been writing it along with my current wife, you know, Padma Desai, we wrote a famous book in 1970, which laid out all of this and said how it should all be dismantled. And in fact, when the prime minister, current prime minister, when he became the finance minister in '91, and had the privilege of really dismantling a whole lot of um, restrictions and so on, uh, and re- eliminating the licensing system, for example. So when he came in here in '92 to to woo our you know big CEOs of uh, McKinsey and Boeing and, you know, the, all the big ones were there, and he invited me and my wife, Padma, to, to the meeting for lunch, and as we entered, uh, he said, he turned to these guys and said, you know, these are, these are two academics, but they're good friends of mine, and they wrote a book about over 20 years ago, outlining the entire agenda of reforms which we are now trying to implement, in 91, and if we had implemented them in the in, you know 20 years ago, uh, we would not be having this lunch because you would already be in India <laughs> as, as a result. So I think that is the so after 91, we never looked back uh, because the economy took off in a very big way, doubling the growth rate uh, and a- escalating it till it reached about eight and a half to nine compared to three and a half at most 4% in the previous uh, 25 years. And the big thing there, of of course, was that in India, like here, for example, I mean, there's this great deal of concern with poverty. But we were in favor of rapid, you know, changing and dismantling this framework, producing growth, because we saw that growth would have a twofold effect. First is growth would, in fact, as far as poverty is concerned, would be a pull-up strategy, because it's very common to say, ah, that's a trickle-down strategy. I mean, you see that continuously on the part of the left. Uh, And this is a crazy way to think of it, in my opinion, for many big countries with a lot of poor people, like China, India, Brazil, uh, South Africa, Indonesia, which is about three-fourths of the world, as you know. Uh, But for those countries, there's so much poverty with which you start, that the to say that you, you're going to have growth means you're pulling people up through providing opportunity to them, pulling them up above a poverty line. And so we managed to have an impact on 200 million people who were drawn up above the poverty line. To think of it as a trickle-down strategy is an absurd, wrong kind of uh, image to have. So I've been responsible for familiarizing Uh, The terminology pull-up strategy is against trickle-down strategy. And two, and this is a very important point, actually, the the growth itself, as we doubtless know here, too, means that your revenues at any given tax rates are likely to go up. Once the revenues go up, then you can spend money additionally to improve the poor, uh, not just by giving them gainful employment, but you can additionally improve their welfare, by basically spending on health and education uh you know mainly for mainly for the poor, so these these we call redistribution, but these are social expenditures, and so that is the a secondary impact, and so I think that that is something which we see in India right now, <clears throat> that a lot of revenue has come in, enabling us finally. To do something about health, education, etc., because as a prime minister who's a friend of mine from 60 years ago, we were in college together in Cambridge, he often would say, "You know, look, I would like to spend more, but where the hell do I get the money from?" Because you know people like uh, Amartya Sen and Mahbub Haq used to sort of just say, "Oh, but we can spend money by reducing, you know, the expenditure on tanks." That if you if you reduce a tank or if you don't buy a tank. You can build five primary schools, but that is pure arithmetic. Go, go and in, go into the political process and say I'm going to reduce defence. I mean that's not always possible, particularly for countries like India, which are surrounded by lots of you know like Myanmar uh, <clears throat> to our uh, you know east and then uh, which is the Burma and then you 've got insurgencies in all the northeast and the Chinese dabbling there we 've got Pakistan on the other side, and then we 've got you know Sri Lanka below, which also is being cultivated by the Chinese in a big way. Well, given all that, just is for me to go and say that we should really reduce spending so that we can have you know five more primary schools. I mean, they'll just tell me to go back to Colombia and and, and teach there because that's not a valid thing. But on the other hand, if you are generating more revenues, that is really going to help. And that's what has happened. Now, we see, therefore, a sequencing uh, for large countries where there are too few rich and too many poor. And that applies to all the countries I mentioned. We first have to grow the economy. Then we come in, in in a proper sequence to spending more on social expenditures. Of course, you can spend some more at any time, but not significantly enough to make a difference to my argument.
0: I want to go back to the 1991 reforms, which um, which you link to the increase in growth. And your critics have suggested that growth started before that. And then there's also the fact that growth takes off in 2003 and four to a new higher level even – how do you first react to the critics who say, well, it wasn't really the reforms? And secondly, what's your explanation for the increase in the growth rate in uh, in the last decade?
1: Because we, we, if you look at the preceding decade, uh, there was very definitely the growth actually takes place towards the end, by which time – Several tariffs, etc., have begun to be reduced. So we already have some of the reforms in progress, so not on a massive scale. So it is true that we – You're had, talking
0: about the decade before the reforms were put in place. The before the late, late 80s, on. yeah.
1: Right, and so it is not correct to say that there were no reforms at all. In fact, we were inching our way towards it, and there were fairly substantial reforms – uh, compared to what went before, but there was nothing like a blitzkrieg, which is what we had in '91. And so I think the you know the the the, the criticism which is being advanced, that has nothing to do with any kinds of conventional growth-enhancing reforms, it, it will not wash. And we do take this up in our book, you know, which we've brought out, uh, because that is one of the things which is usually advanced against, uh, against the notion that the '91 reforms didn't help. Secondly. Because of the reforms are massive, the uh, the increment in the growth rate was huge compared to what whatever we had in the 1980s. So it's not comparable at all. And if you take the entire decade, uh, it's true, it is more like 5%, whereas after that, 91, we get something closer to 8%. So, so there's a huge escalation afterwards. So we were moving slowly, as India always does, India rarely goes fast, as you know. Uh, (laughs) And actually, there's a joke which uh, we had a prime minister uh, called Vajpayee, um, who was actually the BJP, the opposition party guy. Uh, And he used to be very slow in the way he talked. So people were not, you know, and so Tony Blair told me (laughs) that he had once gone to George W. Bush and said that he was going to see the prime minister Vajpayee. So George W. said, oh, but you were there last, uh, you know, just six months ago. So Tony Blair said, yes. But that's when I asked him a question, and now I'm going for the answer. <laughs> so, that's cute. You know, it, it is, there is a different pace, you see. Yeah. <laughs> Things take a little longer. And so I think the, um, the we, we were inching our way, but there's no way we were anywhere close to very substantial reforms. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's anybody's guess what might have happened if we didn't have a balance of payments crisis. And as we know, you know from Confucius and whatever, uh, a good crisis is is, a, is very welcome if you put it to good use. Uh,
0: and but which reforms? Did. But which reforms of '91 do you think were the most important? You
1: know, well, the most important was sweeping away the entire industrial licensing system. Virtually all of it. This was the biggest problem we had because we had no competition as a result because we had import licensing on an extensive scale because of the attitudes which I mentioned. and So you could not have imports freely coming in or even partially freely coming in to provide competition to your domestic production. At the same time, because you had a licensing system which was run on the basis that if you had some capacity in the system, there was no point adding to capacity. So they completely restricted entry on the domestic side. So you had neither domestic entry nor did you have foreign entry. So you had, you know, people who were just earning monopoly rents. And there was, I mean, I remember uh, And at the same time, because of licensing, there were, you know – Hardly any economies of scale, like we had three car plants actually producing ten thousand cars each you know before the before the things uh, the changes started, and you know it started having lots of new capacity to be installed. And when they went up for the automatic protection, because that had to be calculated, so it was almost guaranteed. So one of the judges on the Tariff Commission said that in an Indian car, everything makes a noise except the horn. And this was right down the line, <laughs> absolutely. And the You know, that was the thing which really needed to be changed because in the absence of competition, as you know, you know, everything well, failed.
0: What changed in the politics there? If you look at a lot of foreign countries, that's a common problem, that, that domestic suppliers, domestic companies are protected both from foreign competition and domestic entry. It's a problem of cronyism that's very common outside the United States and sometimes even in the United States, depending on how politically powerful those industries are. What changed in 1991 yeah, you, that muted you
1: see, uh, that? Ours was across the board. I mean, it wasn't as if we had any favorites who were being protected, like our sugar people and so on. It was It was really the system worked on automatic protection for anybody uh, who happened to have any capacity, license, and so on. So I think what happened was that... People began to see increasing, and as I said, it's not just what I wrote, and so on. But I think there was another factor, which was also two other factors, I would say, that the prime minister himself uh, actually told told, told uh, the current prime minister, you know, who was his finance minister. He said, "Look, uh, we, uh, I have lots of my own family abroad." sons and daughters and nephews and nieces, and this is true virtually of everybody, um, you know, in the upper classes in India. They all have family abroad. They keep coming back and saying, how come this, uh, we we have such idiotic policies with such enormous, you know, uh, restrictions on diversification, on capacity expansion, etc., etc., which are driving us into the ground. And so the diaspora effect is what I call it, that a lot of young people coming back said, you, you really cannot have this, uh, you know, because India is really losing rapidly its, its uh, position in the in the world economy. Because if you're not performing well, nobody's going to pay attention to you. And the second thing, I think, was that as increasingly people went out, uh, and this is true of the French as well, whoever, high, because we both have a very high regard for ourselves, uh, <laughs> India because of its ancient culture and France because of its post-19, post-revolution and so on. But anyway, for the last 200 years, um, the worst kind, I mean, they would go abroad and they would find that nobody took India seriously. Uh, So the Indian politicians and bureaucrats were increasingly running into situations where they were, Never simply disregarded and looked down upon. And as I wrote in one of my books before the reform, uh, I said the worst kind of psychological position to be in is to have a superiority complex and an inferior status. <laughs> yeah, I think that got sure. through as well. So I think there's a variety of factors. So endogenously, I don't think it has anything to do with the Washington consensus and pressure from the IMF and World Bank uh, because, you know, you can always get around it. The conditionalities are so diverse that yeah. you can always say, I'll do three things now. I'm working on another five, ten more I will turn to later. And, you know, you can get away with it if you're smart, which the Indians are, I'm afraid. <laughs> Too smart for their own good. And so the it was an internal change. And I've written in the book also, actually, You take the three three countries, which were really remarkable in terms of turning around, around almost similar periods. One was Gorbachev's Russia. Gorbachev realized the thing could not go on. Russia couldn't go on the way it is. If you look at a chart, which we've reproduced in our book, I mean, the growth rate was plummeting down and down. And of course, in the end, uh, with perestroika, because it was badly managed, it went even into negative numbers. But that's, that's later, but the system was you know, rapidly winding down. And I think Gorbachev realized it. And of course, President Reagan gave it a shove as well, because they could not compete with us. Uh, and that, had, that played a little role. But basically, uh, the Russians themselves, the Soviets had realized, I mean, they, it, it, they'd lost the game. Uh, and they had to do something and shape up, mid meaning reforms. And and then you take Deng Xiaoping. I don't think you can claim that it was uh, somebody from Washington who was doing it to him. I mean they they also arrived at their own thing. And in our case also. Uh it was endogenous arguments people produced by people like me and others, which steadily it you know, cut away. That this sort of smugness that you know we have it right and somehow we'll always work it out and so on. Finally, they decided to to, to change the system, and I think so. All the three three big countries had nothing to do with Washington consensus. It was an internal, uh, you know, change of mind. Uh, it was endogenous, as we say in economics, uh, and that's what gave it particular resilience, in my opinion, uh, because just think of it, maybe, not maybe, the IMF said you must get conditionality, like you must do this and you must do that. But that was exactly what we wanted to do. What they asked us to do, uh, like going faster on, uh, on privatization, we could not manage. So we just said, you know, yeah, we can't do it, we'll do it later. And the, 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 the final proof of what – that was endogenous and not driven by external pressures uh, thanks to the crisis is that within two years, we surmounted the crisis. So if it was really not something which we really wanted to do anyway, uh, we could have gone back. But we never went back. We actually kept adding to the reforms rather than subtracting from them.
0: Well, the so question, my, the question, the question always remains – Yes. There's, there's no we in the political process. There's a bunch of individual actors, a bunch of self-interested people, and some altruistic people as well, of course. But one of the criticisms that, uh, that you've tried to answer in your book, and it's a similar issue that arises in the United States, is how the increase in growth rate affects the general population. So there's been no doubt that lots of people have gotten wealthy in India uh, over the last 20 years, and... You argue that it's also had an effective impact on poverty and on the poor. So talk about why growth in India over the last 20 years has been helpful to the poor.
1: Well, because, precisely because of the strategy that I outlined as the one we bought into in the uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, that growth would help the poor in the following you, – you see, let me first say that – uh, there are lots of models you can build in economics. Uh, you have to be sure that you're building the correct one for the problem at hand. Like I'm known, as you know, for a, uh, an article which may be cited if I ever get the novel uh, uh, called Immiserizing Growth, where your growth hurts yourself. That has an application somewhere, but it was often taken to mean that we should not have a, a, a international trade, but I'm not accountable <laughs> for misinterpretations and so on. But basically... The growth model or the growth idea that we, that I think is the correct one is that gr- a growing economy provides opportunities for the poor as well as the rich, but particularly for the poor. Because the poor stuck in villages and so on, are unlikely to improve themselves unless opportunities present themselves. Uh, so they're able to break through the feudal structure and so on. So that is what we see definitely documented in a lot of studies that the poor are able to take advantage of the opportunity. And in fact, even the untouchables, which is the lowest caste we have, there are lots of people going around from within the untouchables who say very much like the anti-NCAA pe- uh, people here today, which is that we have been benefited by the growth of opportunity and not by affirmative action. I don't know. I mean, this is that debate is broken out in India largely because there are lots of people at the bottom who are saying we've benefited because the economy has been growing and we've been able to take advantage of the opportunities that a growing economy gives. So their own, you know, I mean, the very fact that such a debate exists uh, shows that in fact this is a, a, a a workable program in terms of. What we had in mind that we would be able to bring pull people
0: out but, of but what evidence, poverty. But what evidence is there that that's what's actually happened? What what kind of evidence? No, no. There's
1: a lot. We produced a lot of evidence in the book on that, uh, and then, then we also quote these people uh, who actually a lot of them have turned into entrepreneurs and into I'm afraid very wealthy people, and so we produce that evidence uh, in the in the book. Uh, Two, in terms of just the standard outcomes, uh, we also show uh, that for tribals uh, who are difficult to reach uh, because they're not always well connected with the mainstream economy. uh, So if the growth takes place in the mainstream economy, it could possibly pass them by. On the other hand, there is mobility which has been demonstrated in the system. So even they come down and take advantage of the growing opportunities in the mainstream economy. Uh, then, so, we take women, we take shed, what are called scheduled castes, which are the bottom castes, uh, we take untouchables, which is the bottom most, uh, and, and uh, we, you know, when we take all of these groups, and I don't know if I mentioned women, women too, then all of them, according to the studies which we cite, and there are tables and, they, you know, pie charts and so on, in the the book, which show that actually all of these groups have improved, and secondly, uh, some political scientists like El Stepan, who is one of our colleagues and is a very famous um, political scientist who works on democracy and with Juan Lentz of of, uh, Yale, a major figure in political science, they've actually gone and asked, you know, done surveys, asking people, uh, have you improved yourselves? And, you know, this is both both in rural and urban areas. Have you improved yourselves in the last five years? Uh, not asking them, did this particular reform help you? Because they, they can't connect up a specific reform with what's happened to them. Like you say, you ask them, does the exchange rate change help you? <laughs> they don't even know what an exchange rate is. So they'll probably give you a yes or a no, depending on <laughs> just taking a, you know like tossing a coin. Uh, But if you ask them, have you improved yourselves? Uh, Large numbers, a definite majority say yes. If you ask them, do you expect this to continue in the next five years? Again, a very large number say yes again. So uh, that is a kind of evidence both in terms of objective reality, uh, in terms of what's happening to to their incomes, uh, and also what is happening but I mean, what they're saying about what's happening to them, I think those kinds of evidence is what we produce. So really, when anybody says, uh, like some of my, you know, opponents, like Amartya Sen and so on, they they don't have any any such analysis on their side. They just assume that if it's growth, it's going to be for people like you and me and them.
0: Uh, it's not going to be for the poor people. But that's not true. So, I guess one of the critics uh, one of the criticisms they 've come back with is that India remains a very poor country on average uh, per capita yes. income remains very low um, right. and I, while some people are better off, maybe most people they're not doing great they 're doing better than they were poverty measured by either a, a, a particular definition of a poverty line or by the number of people earning less than a dollar a day or two dollars a day. All those right. metrics show improvement, uh, but there's, there's a long way to go. So the question is, is growth a reasonable strategy for the next decade or two? As Is that the best way to help the remainingly still frustratingly large number of people in India who have a very tough time?
1: But I, I think uh, that's a very good question. And I would say that I'm I'm optimist because I do think that in a country like India, you know, where there's still a lot remains to be done. Uh, I mean, if only we'd started the reforms 25 years earlier, as the finance minister was saying, in New York in 91 uh, or 92, um, I mean, we would have been much better off. And the latest numbers on poverty reduction are astonishing, actually, which have just come out in the last few months. Uh, and, uh, and those clearly are related to the growth of the economy before the current government's sort of slackness took over. But I would simply say the following, which is that our, our, you have to bring in politics exactly the way you're doing. And my, I would say what growth has done is to arouse expectations. We used to call it the rising expectations. Uh, I call it a little more pointedly the revolution of perceived possibilities. Until, until growth started in a big way, uh, nothing much was happening to the fortunes of the poor. Uh, and there was a bit of traditional fatalism like this is the way it's going to be you know we, uh, what's the point of voting for an, another party or something uh, it's all going to be the same thing but once the, the eco- economic fortunes began to improve and they saw that they can do even better than their yeah, then I think the that economic aspiration uh, which was aroused has been could have been very disruptive as you were, you, you were suggesting because such a huge country again, and you know it's it's going to take time before you can uh, fulfill their aspirations. But I think we had a democrat. So in in countries like um, China, I mean, people who wanted more would go into the streets and you know have these what are called social disruptions. You know, banging pots and pans and probably. Uh, some of them sent off to out Mongolia or something, which is their Siberia. Uh, but that's not what happens in India, because in India uh, we have all the elements of a liberal democracy, like uh, a relatively free press, a relatively uh, independent judiciary, you have opposition
0: groups and you have NGOs. NGO is a non-governmental organization, a a, a non-profit.
1: All it. these four elements of a of a liberal democracy, which enables. And, of course, in different combinations, it's a huge country as you know uh but uh but some some element of one or two or more uh enables the the economic aspirations to be translated through the ballot box in my opinion, more or less uh into effective political demand, and I think that's a stabilizing factor, so you don't see uh Except in a few places where traditionally we've had armed insurgency and so on uh but the, the country is a, and, and and the large uh I see it as you know as a nice combination of economic growth and as you know arousing aspirations which in turn interact with the political with democratic political process to give us the momentum for further reforms and you know moving ahead uh however slowly <laughs> because uh you know if he didn't have the democracy it could easily wind up with disruptions and so on well, I, and i think that is our strength so i think the politics has to be brought in
0: so i want to ask a question that that you've you touched on there and it it partly is related to a question asked by uh, someone who follows us on Facebook Ariel Kerlinsky and I to encourage people to uh, follow econ talk on Facebook and follow me on Twitter as econ talker which allows me to interact with you out there a little more effectively than just uh, once a week where you listen but uh, the question I want to ask is that that Ariel had is a uh, the cultural impact of growth uh, he asks about the caste system. how has growth changed India besides the material factors that are that are obvious but let 's talk about the cultural factors. Do you have a feel for that
1: um i I think this is where uh, I think we are much better off than than say in China i mean anybody everybody who goes to China comes back and says you know there's no the only cultural value they seem to have uh is how to accumulate uh, personal fortunes and so on. And there isn't all that growth of uh, empathy uh, and doing things for other people. Uh, I don't think we have that. I'll tell you why, because it depends, again, on the part of the country. Uh, I come from Gujarat State, uh, where traditionally, uh, you know, that's, that's where the great Gandhi, you know, Mahatma Gandhi came from, too. Uh, there's the tradition of Jain and Vaishnava, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, where you accumulate wealth. So they did believe in accumulating wealth, but did not believe in spending it in, on self-indulgence. So they were used to do all kinds of social good, uh, building um, education, you know, educational uh, uh, facilities, um, healthcare facilities. They did even dry farming experiments to help with the extension service and agricultural extension service all kinds of things like that. So I think that is something where the culture hasn't really changed with the growth because growth was endemic to the system. I mean, they, so they were like Simon Schama's, uh Dutch burgers, which you doubtless you've read about, uh, you know, the embarrassment of riches. So that's one area where you do see a great amount of um, no, no real cultural uh, change because the growth and using it for uh increasing the benefits to the poor comes naturally in my opinion because that fits in with the traditional culture but i think in in other areas uh you you do see again uh the new culture coming in from the it sector for example uh the it money uh, is, is 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 quite massive now i think what what we had was a situation where uh the traditional culture was very anti lower classes, particularly uh, the untouchable women, I mean their culture caste system was extremely cruel in the south in the south so um, I mean women in many cases lower class women were not even allowed to um, they had to go bare breasted uh, it 's not because it was a French Rivera or something that was a way of humiliating them basically and so when when the Democracy came in when, with 1947 when, you know, when we got independence. And the democracy meant that the lower classes, which had larger numbers, and which had always felt oppressed by traditional Indian culture, they came in and they bundled out all these Brahmins, you see, who used to provide us with the, you know, Indian civil service officers and so on. So they then went off into the IT sector because they were all Brahmins uh, who, who, you know, who... <laughs> who were who utterly brilliant uh so they go off into the IT sector and ha- and that sector then takes off so th- that is very much like the 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 sons of the soil movement of mathair in malaysia which also was you know the, the malaysians were to be pushed so the chinese and the indians started sending their children to to stanford and to uh, to mit and so on and they were so successful they never looked back in the same way, our chaps never looked back and they discovered, you know, a, a massive way to do it. But they, you see, the, they're like the like Bill Gates, et cetera. So these, you know, Wipro, uh, Infosys, these are among the two huge firms which we have, Tata Consultancy and all sorts of people uh, in the IT sector. They are into modern values of the kind which we have over here. So they're spending their monies, not again on themselves, but on basically doing what Bill Gates would be doing, so using it for public good and so I think that's where again you have an impulse coming from another sector, namely the i t sector which is reinforcing the kind of Gujarat culture. But there are many other areas in India which which have no such traditions or and no neither i t sector modern nor the traditional uh, Gujarat values. And that, I think, will depend on steady diffusion of these ideas. Uh, also, the diaspora plays a role. I mean, many of our children from here go there during the summers and do things which they do here, like my daughter, uh, who is a major celebrity uh, doing something. She was in the Marine Corps for five, you know, I think, uh, yeah, five years. Uh, and then is now working on how to to handle the assault on women in the military. Uh So, you know, she's going to India for trafficking. uh, Lots of other, all the children I know of Indian families are going there and spending summer, sometimes a whole year. Uh, So that also brings the same values to our own kids. Uh, over there, so that 's also part of globalization, opening up the economy, opening up the, you know and getting more people to interact, so there are many points at which culture is being affected, but in the good direction in my opinion in in, 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 in India let me, ask uh, you ex- in
0: the, let me ask you about yeah. one one phenomenon that i don 't think was in your book, or maybe I missed it, but uh, it 's my impression that there are a lot of private schools being run in India for the poor for very small amounts of money, with very limited resources, but that are very effective. And I know that the government has been trying to increase its expenditures on education. Uh, It's also increased its regulation, is my understanding of education, which has made it difficult for some of those schools. Do you know anything about that phenomenon, and do you see that as an important way going forward as a way of helping the poor?
1: I think it is a very important thing. What you're seeing is large amounts of private expenditure by extremely low budget people uh, on getting children educated. And I think this is where I, I think you've raised an important question, because I think what you have, I mean, people like Amatya Sen, et cetera, assume that because the monies are – Uh, increased revenues, that therefore they should be spent only on public sector schools and hospitals and so on. Now, in many cases, the schools and hospitals run by the public sector do have better quality, uh, say, doctors and and, and staff uh, and teachers, but they hardly ever turn up. And there's a lot of evidence that the the system doesn't really work at all because people are away, uh, you know... Providing private expertise to and making money outside of the, the where they're supposed to function. So the poor people are starting up their own little schools and so on, you know, on little barges, on, on the payment, uh, all sorts of things. Where People are actually not getting the best teachers in the world, uh, or in, 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 but at least they're turning up. Yes. And so I think one of the things we badly need to do, and this is what I call the send fallacy, that because it is public money, therefore it should be through the public sector. I mean, that's just nonsense, actually. And I think we ought to seriously consider, and that's what we do in the book in the last part, Uh, where we say, you know, how should this be done? Uh, And we point out how there are several ways in which the people themselves are taking the matter into their own hands because they're interested in educating their children, Uh, and they're interested in the health of their children, and they don't want to rely on services which simply will not materialize. Uh, so, So you have to compare the reality of what goes on in the public sector with the reality of what goes on in the private sector, so this is where some very good non governmental organizations are working on how best to supplement and improve what the private schools are doing rather than to set uh, keep throwing money down you know uh, the public sector. Approach, and I think this is this is another thing which this is also cultural. People just assume that somehow it's a government which must do things because they've never really thought of well,
0: we, the private. Yeah, we have that problem here in the United States too. Uh, now, yes. you've mentioned you've mentioned a couple times Amartya Sen, and one of my followers on Twitter, uh, Sumit Kulkarni, wanted to, me to ask you about this, and it's uh, as did a few others. I think Lynn Keesling was interested on Facebook. Um, uh, you've had a very public. Set of disputes with uh professor sen right. what is that disagreement about and is it is it real or is it just a matter of emphasis what What are the key issues that you're arguing with him about and I hope we can get him on EconTalk uh shortly to to give his side but for now, what is your view of that dispute
1: i i think the uh the two things one is uh while he denies it now. He's never been supportive of reforms, which led to the 1991, you know, post-1991 transformation of the economy at all. I mean, if you he, he says that I was for reforms, but if so, uh, he kept it nicely hidden up his sleeve. Uh, to uh, whenever it came to growth, which is at the heart of the strategy to improve the well-being of the poor by pulling them up into gainful employment, et cetera, et cetera, uh, he always on growth-enhancing measures. He was always against them. Like he, in a famous paragraph, which I've quoted, uh, he would he said, you know, people spend too much time deciding whether Coke should be uh, allowed to to, to enter uh, uh, Coca-Cola into India, uh, and they do they neglect the poverty, uh, the, the fact that the country is poor. And so I say, look, I mean, this is absurd because DFI, Direct Foreign Investment, is a growth enhancing strategy. And once growth is enhanced, that will in turn lead to prosperity. Uh, I mean, you know, that will in turn pull up more people into gainful employment. So it will actually affect the poor. Now, if you take uh, trade openness, I don't remember a single time when he was with, with, you know, Great gusto, as <laughs> against just sort of making minor noises, ever supported t- t- trade liberalisation in a big way. I mean, you know, if you really believe in something, you go out, particularly with this kind of reputation, right in the system. Uh, never, ever. Uh, public enterprises, he was always lukewarm, trying to defend them, and that was another thing we had a big problem with. So he was, you know, he, he was not in favor of the state transport, the public transport being uh, privatized. And I said, look, I, I'm, somewhere I told him uh, that they're actually coming in for, um, I used to travel one and a half hours each way from where I lived to Delhi University. Uh, so that's three hours hanging on to a strap in a, in a pretty awful bus. Uh, I didn't have a car like he did to, 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 to travel, you know, from back and forth, Uh so naturally I was looking for improvement of people not just like me, but even below my level of income at that point. And so this kind of um, step motherly attitude that he had. Uh, one other thing I also pointed out that uh, electricity generation and so on. I used to sleep on a little cot, you know, uh, worth one dollar $1 at that time. Uh, which I could put on my head and get back inside if there was a sandstorm in Delhi. And I had a little fan, which is, it's not Sanyo, but the local make was uh, Usha. Uh, so I had a little Usha fan, which then would occasionally, the you know, all the time the electricity would go off, and then I wouldn't even have the fan. But what what happened to people like here, like, like Professor Sen's sort of family and so on, they were... That and my family too, but uh, I didn't live with them. Uh, they actually have private generators, so they would immediately move on to 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 operating the uh, air condition. So I said, look, these these reforms which we are doing on a massive scale on all these dimensions are really not for just. Rich people like you and me, but they're really for the lower middle classes and really for the poor, because the rich manage to somehow insulate themselves
0: but that's, in one that's, way or another. That's the I agree, but that's the past. Looking forward, where do you disagree with him? Do you think? Uh, if-
1: now I disagree uh, because you see, I think having been bypassed by all these reforms, I think he's under a psychological compulsion. I suspect to say that look, I, I want to make a you know put my ore into the water again. Uh, and I, I think he's, he's really getting it wrong because he's now trying to support the food security bill. Now, the food security bill will double the share of uh, expenditure from about 1% to at least 2% of GDP. That's a big expenditure, right, uh, increase. At the same time, we've had this particular government for the last, five, I think, almost six years has done very little on growth. So the growth-enhancing measures have been on hold, more or less. So right now, uh, they're beginning to wake up again, but that's going to take some time before it has any effect. So what you have is a situation where the reforms have, uh, or rather the reforms having been stalled, uh, the revenues have been slowing down. The growth of revenues has been slowing down. At the same time, because of wanting to spend more money, on food security bill, but just to get a populist vote. Uh, what is what is what is expenditures the what is are increasing? What is so the food security
0: de- bill though? What is that?
1: That is uh, where you have to you, you give a certain amount of food for free, and uh, public distribution. Like food stamps, basically.
0: Like food stamps here in the United States. Like food
1: stamps, but the point is they're doubling it now, purely not not because there's any huge compulsion uh, to do so, except political. They think they're going to get a lot of mileage out of it. And you see, this is also something that the government has been steadily doing, which is itself risky, which is, as you know, I mean, basically the civil and political rights are supposed to be relatively cost-free. So like habeas corpus has to be provided, even if you're a poor country. Uh, okay, but, but the economic rights, uh, they are expensive. So these are two separate things. So what this government has been doing uh, is increasingly shifting uh, from the the approach where you you just have guiding principles, what we call directive principles, to turning each of these things into rights, which means you've got to spend monies, which of course leads to – a great pressure to spend more money, uh, and that's what they've been doing, you see. So it's, 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 uh, it's part of a general debate we've had ever since the Constitution in 1947, uh, you know, after we became independent. But right now, because they want more and more votes, they've been not... Lo- I mean, we could afford to do some of this because the growth-enhancing uh, policies had led to was steadily increasing revenues. But now, having slowed down all of that, the government is now <laughs> in a situation where they're on a high speed on social spending but they uh, they're on a low speed on r- raising revenue so now we are getting exactly the problem which is a disjunction between what you know what you're taking in by revenue which permits you to do these social expenditures and the you know steadily expanding uh politically di- driven uh, social expenditure. So my fear is, uh, that this is going to lead to this disjunction will mean most definitely inflation. Uh, because, you know, I mean, that's what happens when you spend more than what you you're taking in. And I think this is where, uh, Professor Sen has jumped in, uh, supporting the populist thing. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, you know, if I may put it funnily, I mean, he wants to put his oar into the water finally because he's been bypassed uh, by the 91 reforms. But in in trying to put his oar into the water, he's falling overboard and he's going to drown. Uh, and in my judgment, the UPA government, my prediction is that uh, the current government is not going to stick with him. I mean, he's sticking with them. Uh, so they trying to support all this. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the prime minister is very smart, uh, although he's not... I mean, I mean, he doesn't have the chutzpah of, uh, you know, some dynamic leaders, but he's damn good. Uh, and uh, I know the—I've met repeatedly the uh, Gandhi family and so on. The young man is very, you know, he's intelligent. And uh, uh, Sonia Gandhi obviously can't have gone as far as she has unless she has some smarts about her, and I know her too. Uh, I don't think they're going to stand for advice of the kind which Professor Sen is giving, i.e., you know, you know say, yes, expand these expenditures and so on and so forth, uh, which, is, which really will hurt them in the, in the election. So I think they're going to—my prediction is that in about a couple of months they will have uh, simply put the man into low-key uh, and gone on with their own business. Uh, Because there's so many economists, virtually, I I can think of about 15, who have written detailed, specific criticisms of the FS Food Security Bill expansion. Uh, and how it poses dangers. And I think these, the, the leadership of the current government is bound to take notice because these are not general criticisms. These are specific criticisms, which he's not been able to answer at all. Well, I'm I mean, going to give
0: him a chance. If, we'll see if yeah, he tries. you can ask him to do that, but put him on the map. Live, because
1: live. there's no way, uh, because he's never shown how you can get more revenue. Uh, he just assumes it'll fall like manna from heaven.
0: Well, I'll give him a chance. The God but,
1: is asleep at the watch.
0: <laughs> uh, we're we're getting short on time. I want to give you. Uh, I want to close with a with a more philosophical question. Why? You're, well, because it's interesting. So here's the question: You have made dramatic claims in your book and in your writing about the impact of various policies on growth, and you have you've documented it with lots of charts and graphs. Uh, I want to raise two questions, though. That, let's get your reaction. One is the quality of data in the Indian, about the Indian economy, about poverty, about expenditures, how accurate do you think the data measurement uh, is in India? That's the first question. The second question is, given how complicated the world is, given how the fact that India is increasingly in an international world, is connected to the international trading system, connected to the events around it, how confident are you that the policies that you want to credit for the good things and the policies you want to blame for the bad things, how do you know that they're really what's going on and it isn't a more complicated pheno- set of phenomena going on?
1: Um, I think on, on the first one, I, I think the um, we have the world's leading Indian, Indian Statistical Institute from which mathematical statisticians have gone out all over populating U.S. departments and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a it's a huge success, uh, which also shows that bricks and mortar are not the way to go. Um, it's a dilapidated building, uh, but you know, world class in terms of its human capital. <clears throat> they, from the beginning, have had sample surveys, which are statistically unassailable in terms of sampling theory, et cetera. So I think see, over time, and we are talking for almost 50 years, there's a huge amount of improvement continuously going on. So I would say the quality of the data is very good. Uh, I mean, it's just unusual, even even by our standards. Uh, so I think that is something we don't need to worry about. And I don't think there is any uh, politically motivated uh, data ga- generation like, in, like in many people fear in China. Uh, that's another extreme example. So I would say, no, I wouldn't worry about that. But what I also would say is, that I've talked to anthropologists, social anthropologists like Etchan um, of uh, Geneva and Paris, uh, who is the worst, I, I, probably the leading anthropologist working on it, and he's done what I, I call doing a Jan Myrdal, uh, you know, in a North Korean village uh, study way back. He's gone back to the same villages again and, and again and again, and he speaks Hindi fluently and so on. He almost looks like a peasant, you know, uh, and. He's been recording continuous improvements in every village that he's gone through, particularly the ones which are rainfall-fed or or irrigation-fed and so on. So I think, you know, in in economics, I feel that we have to use a rational approach, use different techniques to try and get a sense of what's happening. And I'm convinced, actually, that in fact things have improved uh, dramatically in the countryside. So it's not just because of the uh, of the NSS data, National Sample Survey data, and so on. Um, on the on the second one, uh, I it's it's of course we we exist in a world economy. If the world economy goes down the tubes, of course we will be affected as well in India. But you know there are ways of coping with what what happens. Uh, in the sense that unless you are asleep at the uh, At the watch, I mean, there are mechanisms and responses which we can actually, you know, uh, talk about. Now, if there's a worldwide deflation, which fortunately, thanks to the U.S., we seem to be avoiding right now, That's going to affect everybody, most definitely. A little less so us than, than China, because China is much more outward oriented than we are. So we have, this is a matter of, you know, pros and cons. Because we are less open, you know, than we should be, we still have some, some ways to go on opening up the economy, at least on trade side. Uh, we also gain less. On the other hand, when the downturn comes, we lose less. So again, you have to do a careful assessment of where you want to be. You know, what's the optimum amount of But
0: I, the, question I'm I want, to... the, the question I want to close with is you're awfully confident, yes. you're awfully confident that, that the reforms worked and that more reforms would be better and that the previous, that, that the gains to the Indian economy over the last 20 years, particularly the last 10 years, are because yes. of better economic policy. I'm sympathetic to that idea, but the world's a complicated place. Do you have any doubts? Isn't there a role for the... Aren't there things you're not measuring, you're not looking at? You really, you've really you not looked at every bit of data. You've probably left out some of the things that aren't so cheerful about what's going on in India. Are you sure? How sure are you? And why?
1: Well, I mean, I, uh, there's the reason why I'm pretty optimistic is because I've seen the thing happen, you know, as a result of the reforms. I mean, for years... When I was arguing for it, it was still relatively theoretical, you know, for for about over 20 years, because I just assumed, based on my research and my thinking in the 1960s in the Indian Planning Commission, when I was working on the problem of reducing poverty, I just hypothesized, like some of the others, you know, with whom I was working, that, you know, only growing the economy would pull us out of the, you know, would pull lots of people out of poverty. Now, since we didn't grow at all because of a, you know, bad policy framework, we never could test that. So maybe I'm on a rebound in the sense that uh, I've seen the thing work, finally. Uh, The people who oppose the reforms uh, remind me of uh, what Ken Galbraith said about Milton Friedman, uh, and I think... uh, I mean, I admire Milton Friedman at least as much as I admire Ken Galbraith. But he said the trouble about Milton Friedman's policies uh, was that they had been tried. Uh, and I think the, when it comes to people who oppose the reforms or have been lukewarm about them and have been sort of more or less implicitly or explicitly endorsing the way things were going on, I mean, their model, their approaches have been tried uh, and have failed, uh, I have now seen uh, maybe i'm i 'm too optimistic, perhaps because i've seen that the kinds of things we really thought should be tried when tried did produce uh good results you know for the and particularly for the poor, because I think you can 't live in India without worrying about poverty in fact, that was the reason why I shifted from social anthropology which when I was young it was a status quo science, not today. Uh, And I wanted to to study a subject where I could make a difference. Uh, And economics was a tool for amelioration of uh, poverty and then solving problems, you know, social problems. So in that sense, I mean, I'm delighted. But of course, I mean, uh, if if anybody can suggest what else we could do, I would be perfectly open to that. But I I don't see anything in what's the current state of the debate in India. Uh, where people are actually suggesting things which are worth doing uh, because they're not thought through. One of the problems about Indian debates is that we don't really have debates. We just have assertions on, you know, as my uh, co-author, Panagarya said, in India, many people think they, they, they just don't want to, they don't just want to have their own arguments. They also want to own their, have their own facts, assuming they ever refer to facts. Uh, and I think this is something which uh, which leaves me a little disappointed because obviously through debates you can learn something, right, from people who disagree with you. But in India, it's, it just degenerates into assertions, I'm afraid. And Professor Sen, you know, when he writes to the, to the you know, saying, uh, oh, we can have, we could have had rapid growth uh, uh, like Singapore, uh, which had which invested in education, I mean, I've written about six articles, you know, on on, on Singapore, trying to understand what happened. And if you uh, just having education is like the field of dreams approach. Uh, I mean, education in itself is not going to lead to massive expansion of productive investment and growth and prosperity, because you you first have to have the outward orientation. That's what Singapore had that with that outward orientation they managed to import a lot of machinery with embodied technology which then because of education meaning high literacy which the japanese had left behind uh, they could actually get more out of that machinery uh than, than would have been possible otherwise and then they imported a lot of um, you know people like you and me uh to to at the higher level in the meantime they proceeded to send their kids out to 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 Stanford, uh, MIT, and and Columbia, and so on and so forth. So education was supportive. I didn't initiate, in my opinion, anything. But you see, when Professor Sen just says that, you know, here you have Singapore, Singapore you know, reflecting education. Uh, and then he talks about China and then China's growth had very little to do with education of the labor force. And it was a re- Marxist reserve army of labor for the most part and it was a decollectivization and the ex- you know, exports of um export orientation from the Guangdong provinces, which really transformed the economy. And now, of course, you know, education is sort of falling in a big way. But it seems to me that, he, he, you know, when, when you're confronted with such arguments by people who know diddly about the subject, uh, and they, they have ascription, you know, I mean, because in India, I mean, you very few people think of kicking people like me and Professor Sen in the butt and saying, you're wrong. Uh, when that culture changes, and I hope it changes soon, then it is fine. But, but in the meantime, people just make assertions like Rosa Sen does.
0: My guest today has been Jagdish Bhagwati. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast